The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Premier League. Watford make Hodgson's choice after West Brom, Fulham and Iceland. Will the Hornets be the latest underdog to benefit from Uncle Roy's magic touch? Pereira out, Lampard in and more writing on the wall for Everton news. We've got the latest transfer talk ahead of Monday's deadline and we hear the latest from Cameroon. AFCON, the aftermath of the tragedy there last Sunday and what awaits this weekend in the Cup of Nations. It's all coming up in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. All right there, listener. Thanks for uh, turning up for this one. It is uh, totally on Thursday, 27th of January. And here for you, we have Duncan Alexander. Hi, Duncan. Hello, James. Dom Fifield. Hello, Dom. Hey, James. And also joining... Hello, Dom. And also joining is Maher Mazahi from uh, Cameroon. Hi, James. Hi, Maher. It's so nice to... I should say, listen, we, we all get on a Zoom call together to kind of create the illusion of intimacy, some kind of shared energy and that. And until now, Maher's always been a distant voice from a far-off land on the phone, but today's very much in our faces... And uh, what a, what a what a pleasant expression that is to be. What right, now he's taking his hat off? No, and... but you can see just how like I haven't usually. I'm always like bald to the skin. And oh yeah, my beard is a little more tame than this. But just okay. when you're in the intensity of like a, a major tournament and it's match after match after match. Yeah, and then also hugely significant events. Haven't had the time to even get to a barber in the last like three weeks. So. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> All right. Uh, when you mentioned hugely significant events, of course, uh, we're coming to you, listener, in the middle of the winter break. Uh, top flight football taking an international pause across Europe, although championship, etc. continuing. There's also World Cup qualifiers in Combibol and CONCACAF. And above all, uh, there's AFCON going on. We've also had managerial news in the Premier League. We'll be getting onto that later on. But we'll begin uh, with events at the Cup of Nations. Maher, so good you can join us. Very much a tournament marked by tragedy this week uh, with the deaths of uh, supporters, including uh, two children, as fans tried to get into the, the game between Cameroon and, and Comoros. What, what actually happened now, Maher? So, um, you know, I, I don't know how it is when you go to tournaments in Europe or elsewhere around the world. I've only been to AFCONs, but... We usually get to the stadium five, six hours early because, especially for this tournament, because you have to COVID test before on site. So that can take a long time if you arrive at the same time as fans. So we got there very early to COVID test. And, and the, the one thing we noticed immediately is that there's only two real main entrances that go into this Stade Olembe, which is now the biggest stadium in Central Africa. It holds um, 60,000 people. They had built it brand new specifically for this AFCON. But leading up into the AFCON, the Confederation of African Football had real concerns about the fact that the exterior fence was not completed in time. And you had people walking all the way around into the south entrance. And in the southern entrance, it led you into maybe like, I would say, 20 tents maximum. And in these tents, they're checking COVID vaccination, negative PCR test, tickets. Once you pass that, you go through a police check, which they open your bag check your pockets, make sure you don't have a lighter, a water bottle, whatever. And that filters into three gates. So you had 60,000 people going into three gates. And the gate entrance, I would say, is um, not more than two meters in width. The walkway itself 
is quite large actually, but even that was constricted. For example, it's like two lanes, but uh -huh. they were forcing people onto one lane for some reason. I think just in case maybe a car had to get out on the other side or something. And when you had a lot of people filtering in, um, sort of being bottlenecked in, and you have um, you know people going through the sanitation testing, and for some reason, this is what the CAF president was talking about yesterday in his emergency press conference, one of those gates, at least one of them, the second gate, was closed. And he was saying all of this could have been avoided if this gate wasn't closed, who decided to close it, that's where the accountability is going to come from. But that's how it happened. Um, I remember I, I walked out of the media center into the press box at like 7.20, so 40 minutes before kickoff. And I'm looking at, I'm saying, where is everybody? Like this is a round of 16 match at the host nation. Mm. And, you know, it's there's maybe 10% full. And sure enough, like 20 minutes later, there was like a, a steady stream of people coming in. Unfortunately, like you said, eight dead and I think I think more than 40 injured now. All right. <clears throat> it's uh, it's uh, really, really sad. Above all, because how familiar some of the, the details sound from from uh, you know, experiences of the, of the past. But the tournament continuing, while, as you say, they look to try and work out what happened and apportion blame and that. Was there awareness during the game of, of what had happened prior to kickoff? So 10 minutes in, uh, a colleague had sent me just a text message. A, there was a stampede outside of the stadium. That's not really like, not stampede, he said there was a rush. And that's not really like the most rare uh, occurrence. You know, it happened in the 2019 final as well. It happened in the 2016 African Women's Cup of Nations here in Cameroon as well. So. Like these things can happen and sometimes, you know, there's minor injuries or sometimes, you know, people just rush the gate and they get in for free without any tickets. I didn't think much of it, but around the 60th minute, I had a, another colleague from the BBC. He sort of nudged me and said, hey, there's trouble outside. And I thought maybe people were fighting with police or he's like, come on, follow me. So we ran out and 60th minute of a great game between Cameroon and Comoros who put up a you know a heroic effort. And that's all been, of course, overshadowed by this, rightfully so. And as we sort of exited, we went to the the area where the crush was and you could just see that was just like it was tragic because you could see like shoes you know like shirts there were like the horns you know like the vuvuzelas like i saw a whistle papers uh and just like just the the aftermath of what had happened but with, uh, other than that it was like eerily calm no there was nobody else there the security guards were telling us yeah there was a stampede but uh, it's okay nothing else happened and then I sort of ran back into the stadium and that's when the rumors of death started to emerge. And almost immediately the Cameroonian journalists started like getting videos uh, on WhatsApp. They're obviously being forwarded like crazy and they're showing me, but it's kind of unverified, but you kind of knew it was, this is probably it, you know? And then it's just a matter of like, you know, as a journalist, when you're reporting on things like this, you sort of have to detach yourself, like remove any kind of sentiment and just focus on getting accurate, accurate, making sure you're accurate, getting like the facts and figures of what happened, reporting that, um, and yeah, just trying to make sure you're responsible. And then, but there was a moment, just really quickly, the last thing I'm going to say, and then I'll shut up. There was a moment when I, like after reporting on all of this, I think I slept at 5 a.m. that night, but probably between 3 and 4 a.m. I, I just sort of lay down on my couch like this, and I was just like, because I was just so focused on the facts and the figures and the and what happened exactly at the stadium, and then I just thought about like the people, like, I'm, I'm a claustrophobic person. Like, I've been caught in, like, crushes before in anti-government demonstrations. And I remember, like, panicking and hyperventilating and stuff. And I just remember, like, thinking, like, if you're, like, a kid, imagine how scared they must have been. And that, that part really hit me. So tragic. And I was disappointed that we played football the next day. Very, very disappointed. Um, 
but uh, I think um, CAF are waiting now for a, a report, investigation that's supposed to be under table by Friday, and then they're going to release one more statement, and we're going to see what we're going to do with that stadium in Olambe. Okay. In the meantime, the uh, the stadium they they moved the games away from that stadium. In a sense, looking at the numbers involved, you mentioned sixty thousand fans, the majority of whom trying to get through a gate. It, it's almost surprising that the. the I, I, just, I mean, kind of one thing I feel grateful is that the numbers weren't worse than that. Because if you look at similar events in the past, it, it's almost remarkable that the crush didn't have more of an impact than that. And part of the gate eventually did like fall over. So, you know, in those situations, that's probably a good thing because it probably opened up right. the, the width a little bit more of the passage. Um, but yeah, I, I saw I saw a police document of the, num- the list of deaths, uh, which is another jarring thing to see. Especially at the end, it just said two unidentified, you know, and the other ones, they had like phone numbers, ages, occupation, everything. So I, I do think th- those figures are accurate, but just thankful that it's not more, like you said. Maher, um, absolutely uh, shocking there for for everyone and, and, and devastating for the, the families of those who died. Uh, the tournament, as you say, going on, uh, we'll touch on what's happened on field, what, what awaits after this. Afghan, we have the quarterfinals awaiting this Saturday. Gambia are the next team to take on host Cameroon after Comoros exit on Sunday. Burkina Faso, meanwhile, up against Tunisia. Whoever wins those two games will face each other in the semis. And the other side of the draw sees Egypt, who put out Ivory Coast, taking on Morocco. And the winner of that will take on either Senegal or Equatorial Guinea. Meher, if it's all right, let's go back to Sunday's game, the one that saw the tragic crush, Cameroon-Comoros, because in football terms there was some... uh, It was a remarkable story in itself. Comoros, who were playing in their first AFCON, coming in without a recognised keeper, the left-back in goal. They thought that one of the keepers would be able to play, but then was there a change of regulations to mean that he couldn't? (laughs) There was a change of regulations, uh the night before or the morning of, we're not 100% clear yet. And this is crazy because Tunisia had benefited from a, an exemption because players are supposed to test negative 48 mm-hmm. hours before the match, not 24 hours before the match. Um, and if you remember earlier on in the tournament, Khalidou Koulibaly was furious about this because he wanted to be tested the day before the match because he really wanted to play. And they were pretty stringent about that. For some reason, Tunisia, whose federation president is in the CAF Medical Committee, uh, benefited from an exemption where their player could test negative 24 hours before the match, fly 1,300 kilometers north, play against Nigeria. Uh, he came in. He came on as a sub, Wadi Khazari, former Sunderland. Um, the Comoros did not benefit from this exemption. Their reserve goalkeeper, Ali Ahmada, uh, former Toulouse goalkeeper, uh, did not end up playing the match. So we ended up having an emergency goalkeeping situation. It's really fun. <laughs> All right, he did. He did well though. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, like honestly, when he came onto the pitch, he was sort of the last one to come on. So I could feel like he knew the spotlight was on him. So like stretching his arm like this and having a chat with I think it was the goalkeeping <laughs> coach. You know, every every like ten minutes he'd sort of run down to the sideline, t- talk to the goalkeeping coach. His distribution was okay. Um, for the goal that he conceded, the first goal, I thought his reaction, his positioning was a bit off, but. How bad can you blame him, really? He had a really nice double save where he sort of dove one way and then sort of made a uh, save with his leg in the other. So 
And, and oh, by the way, I spoke to Comorian journalists and they were saying that nobody wanted to play goalkeeper for the match. Everybody was too scared. They didn't know what was going to happen. And he basically stood up <laughs> and volunteered for this at the stadium. So just like right. two hours before the match, that's when they finally figured out who's going to play keeper for them. I think my favourite bit of, of his performance was, A, as you say, the double save was genuinely brilliant. But also there was one shot where there's a snapshot of him putting his arms behind his back because he's a defender. So obviously these days you can't. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, no, 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 no hang on. That's <laughs> just... Just absolutely tremendous, and um, and we shouldn't forget Comoros has scored one of the great consolation goals of the right. time. So. Changamar's going to take it on! Oh! Unbelievable strike! Don't write us off yet. It was a, a magnificent moment. Comoros had been down to ten men after I think what three minutes. I think very harsh red card, but uh, yeah, a game Sunday that. Uh, obviously takes on a very different significance in light of everything else that happened around the stadium. Cameroon next up will be taking on Gambia. That's Saturday, 4 o'clock UK time. Again, it's a massive mismatch, Maher. It's the Gambia. The article, the, is always pronounced before the, the nation, the Gambia. All right. Um, so Cam- yeah. <laughs> Cameroon taking on the Gambia. Yeah, it is a big mismatch. Cam- uh, the Gambia <laughs> are debutants. Um, but... They're really not playing with an inferiority complex, especially the most impressive players for me have been their front three. Um, Ablijalo, Musa Baro, Modu Baro, and even the tall, lanky striker, Asan Sise, when he does uh, play. I think they've had really good combination. Musa Baro has hit the crossbar two times on free kicks already. Uh, Ablijalo is one of those players that came through one of the best academies in Africa, Generation Foot. It's the one that Sadio Mane came from. So he went through this Senegal, uh, through Metz in France, which is the usual pipeline. And then from there, he's playing in Belgium uh, for a club owned by Metz. Um, and they have a really good leader in defense too, Omar Kohli. I think he's playing in Sampdoria. Uh, he just sort of marshals his defense and they're organized. So they're, they've been, they should be proud of themselves. They've played well. I just don't fancy them too well against Cameroon. <laughs> mm. it's, uh, the, I didn't realize this, but the Gambia is actually the smallest nation in terms of, uh, is it geography or by population size in, in mainland Africa? I think it, I'm not sure about that. I think it might be one of the a two. Anyway, because if you just if you look, well, no, at I think it, it's, it's geography. Like a weird yeah, one. yeah, it's like one of those weird ones where um, it's it's really colonial like borders because Senegal is just here in West Africa, and the Gambia mm-hmm. just follows a river into Senegal. Um, and I think the British uh, controlled that river. And I think that's why we call it the Gambia, because it's named after it, the Gambia River. Um, okay. That's something that I learned very recently as well. So it's one, it's a weird one. And, and if you look at it, it's, the river kind of flows up like this, sort of like a smile. And so they call it the Smiling Coast. Yeah. And they're really, that's really nice. nice people. So it's, yeah, duly named. Smaller than Yorkshire, I believe, the Gambia. Well, can you imagine if Yorkshire were in an international tournament, we'd never hear the end of it, would we? <laughs> In the Afghan. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Senegal, in the meantime, have made it through to the quarterfinals. They have also now scored from open players, well, excitingly. They will be taking on Equatorial Guinea uh, on Sunday. Big question here seems to be whether Sadio Mane can feature after he got uh, the opening goal in their round of 16 clash with Cape Verde. He, He had a clash of heads with the keeper and was subbed off and then taken to hospital. 
Yeah, it was, it was obviously coming into this game, Senegal's issue was, was goal scoring, which is a strange if you've got Sadio Mane, but they scored one goal in the group stage. They still haven't conceded yet in the tournament. Sort of were making fairly heavy work of, of breaking down Cape Verde, and then there was this awful clash of heads between Mane and the, and the keeper. Um, the keeper was, was he sent off? Yeah, he was instance? sent off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which seemed a little harsh, but he was also, you know, completely out of it. Mane stayed on, which caused pretty wide consternation amongst everyone, um, but then literally scored an absolutely brilliant goal uh, for the edge of the box a few minutes later, and then was substituted off you know, almost straight away, which I don't think follows uh, concussion protocols. You know, See if they can score a goal, then take them to hospital. But um, He's, He lies down on the halfway line, doesn't he, at the restart, and, yeah. and that, that's, when he's, that's when he's substituted. I mean, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bit a bit concerning, but um, yeah, uh, you know Senegal now in the third tournament in a row in the quarterfinals um, mm. and look, looking pretty good, I would say. Yeah, they take on Equatorial Guinea's as I say, who made it past Mali, uh, which wasn't the most eventful of games, just two shots on target across 120 minutes. Let me ask you instead, then, Maher, about. Your thoughts on another of the quarterfinals Sunday, which is Egypt against Morocco. Woof. Proper North African derby, yeah. Um, for me, this is going to be, I think Morocco are the better team, but Egypt have the better player. So who, who wins that? Um, and that's simply, again, we talked about leaving Hakim Ziyech at home. I thought Morocco were going to struggle with uh, scoring against Malawi. I didn't think that was going to happen, but as the match sort of progressed, Morocco was starting to struggle against Malawi a little bit in the first half. I was trying to keep an eye on seeing like who's going to step up here from Morocco, who's going to uh, make the difference. And it ended up being Ashraf Hakimi, the, the Paris Saint-Germain right back, with a beautiful free kick. I think his second uh, free kick goal in this tournament. Uh, he joked after the match that he's going to have to ask Lionel Messi and Neymar to, to take them at, at PSG too. So can you rely on Ashraf Hakimi to consistently score goals for you? Maybe. I mean, yeah, he's, he's that good offensively. But I, I still don't know if Morocco can score against a really organized, stout defensive side. And that's what Egypt have become. They didn't start the tournament uh, as impressive as they looked yesterday. Um, I thought yesterday they looked very tactically balanced. They had three central midfielders, three proper central midfielders uh, in their 4-3-3. The front line played very well, Omar Marmouche, um, Mohamed Salah, and Mustafa Mohamed. And I think even Carlos Queiroz got his substitutions correct, moving into a 4-2-3-1 later in the match, incorporating more attacking impetus. And I think they took the game to the Ivorians. I think they deserved to win. Uh, it ended up being a penalty shootout. Um, but now you have Morocco against Egypt. Yeah, so two really good, experienced coaches in Vahid Halilodzic, uh, shoot yourself in the butt guy, uh, Carlos Queiroz, former uh, Sir Alex Ferguson assistant. And you have... Uh, it's uh, these tend to be KG matches when you have North mm-hmm. African derbies. I don't expect there to be a lot of uh, goal scoring occasions. It's going to be high intensity, but for me, it comes down to Morocco are the better team, Egypt has a better player. Who's going to triumph? Okay, and the other quarterfinal is Saturday at seven UK time, and that is Burkina Faso against Tunisia, who put out Nigeria in spectacular fashion uh, in the in the yeah. last sixteen. Yeah, Tunisia, I think, set up pretty well against Nigeria. It's some, sometimes tournament play sort of rewards, not negative football, but like, you know, solid defensive football. I think Tunisia, that was the case against against Nigeria. They set up in sort of like a narrow 4-3-3, clogged the middle of the field. And then when the ball was passed out to Nigeria's uh, speedy wingers, um, Chekwezi and uh, and Moses Simon, uh, Tunisia did a good job of sort of dropping down and doubling down on them. 
So uh, I think they they, pro- they still probably deserve to win the match against Nigeria. I think they look better organized. And it seemed like they, I hate when, you know, analysts say they wanted it more because I think, mm. you know, all these players really want to win an African Cup of Nations. But sometimes you can sort of feel like they're more invigorated. I don't know. They're more, you know, they, they just, it feels like they want it more, even though I'm sure they everybody wants it the, the same amount. Um, so yeah, Tunisia are through. Burkina Faso is an interesting one. I don't know if they're going to be affected by events going on at home. There's been a, a coup in Burkina Faso. Uh, the president and other high-ranking officials have been arrested. But they're one of, for me, they should be the re- true dark horses of the tournament. Every year we say Mali, look at their central midfield. You know, they have players in the Premier League. They have players here, here, here. But Burkina Faso are the side that consistently makes it to this stage of the tournament if not a step further. So uh, I think they look good. They're a young team with a lot of willing runners, uh, again, uh, marshaled by their coach, who's a former uh, chief of police. And I think that's going to be a very good game, an underrated game. All right. Chief of police as your coach. Speaks to like a, a powerful presence on the, the sideline. And I, I know you're excited by Yusuf Masakni, the, the tiger. Yeah, actually, I messed up with that. That's not, it's Nims, and I thought it was Nimr. So okay. one alphabet, one letter of the alphabet off. So he's not the tiger; he's the mongoose. You see oh, in so I think that's probably yeah a better a better right. nickname for him. Classic okay. slip, that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, crouching tiger. You were mongoose. you were writing about him because the, the brilliant goal he scored for Tunisia uh, yeah. against Nigeria. No, it's his seventh Afcon, and uh, he steps up usually. You know, when, when on a big occasion, he's done it in Cap Champions Leagues before. And I remember in 2013, him scoring a ridiculous goal against Algeria um, in a 1-0 victory. And again, he did the same thing here. Just watch the, the, the dribble, the body feint, how he sort of sidesteps Wilfred Ndidi, who everybody knows is a, a really, really good you know, defensive midfielder. And the shot was a bit lucky. I think the goalkeeper should have got a stronger palm to it. But come with the moment, come with the men. He steps up on big, big occasions. So Yusuf Msekni is a player that I don't think a lot of people in Europe know because he's only played in Tunisia and in and the Gulf. But uh, he's in, here in this part of the world. He's a legend. Okay, the mongoose. All right. Now the big occasion for him to step up for Saturday at seven. Uh, then as Burkina Faso take on Tunisia. All right, Maher. Uh, I mean, hopefully you can enjoy what looked like an exciting set of fixtures, uh, notwithstanding the uh, events of last last Sunday. Imagine the mood there, though, is is somewhat subdued. Yeah, I think the investigative report that's supposed to come uh, on Friday and uh, the subsequent, I think people from the Cameroonian FA and from CAF are going to be visiting families. I think all of that's going to bring a little bit of closure um, and the final decision of what they're going to do in the stadium in Alembe. I don't want to go over there again, but we'll see what's going to happen. But I think slowly but surely people are getting back into the football. um, And yeah, hopefully we can try to enjoy what's left of this tournament. But most important, I think, is that a proper investigation is done and justice is um, rendered unto the families. Excellent, Mehe. Thank you so much. I hope you do enjoy the weekend and we'll catch up with you on Monday, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Mehe Mazahi, who will be pitch side reporting. If you're watching AFCON via the BBC's coverage, you can see him at work. Uh, let's see on the Gambia, the Gambia Cameroon, the the Gambia Cameroon game, <laughs> and also the, the MLS Gambia, no, yeah, and also Senegal Equatorial Guinea, I think, yes, but only on the BBC's coverage. Nice. All right, next up, 
Back to the Premier League and the return of Roy Hodgson. Hi again, listeners. It's me. Please don't fast forward. I'm Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Watford pulled the ejector seat, lever and parted company with Claudio Ranieri in a bid to save their top flight status this week. The Hornets have gone the wise old owl route to get them out of dodge and have given the reins to one Roy Hodgson. Now, in terms of the Premier League betting, the Paddy Power traders make Watford 3-1 on to go down. The stay up Watford are a 2-1 shot. To give you context, fellow relegation candidates Newcastle are 8-15 odds on to beat the drop while Burnley are 6-5. So the odds are literally against Watford and Roy Hudson will have to hit the ground running. But he arrives with his favourite personnel right by his side in the form of Ray Lewington and will be looking to do what in recent times he has done best, beat the drop. We last saw the former Liverpool and England manager when he left Crystal Palace at the end of the 2020-21 season, having ensured top-flight survival in each of his four seasons at Selhurst. Wow. Watford have not won since the 20th of November, but they're not completely dead in the water yet, as they still have a game in hand on Newcastle, who sit a point and a position above them in 18th, and two fewer than Norwich, who are two points and two positions above them in 17th. Not an impossible job. One would be forgiven for thinking Hudson might have embraced retirement after such an extensive and weighty body of work, but it seems there's still life in the old dog yet, and Watford fans will be hoping that Roy and Ray can come in and preserve the most important thing to them at the moment, top-flight football, for next season. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org and remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. All right, exciting news, listener. You probably saw on Tuesday, uh, following last Friday's defeat at home to lowly Norwich, Watford confirmed that Claudio Ranieri was out, and boom, they'd already sorted out his replacement, Roy Hodgson. Roy former manager of big clubs and small ones, of nations, of more recently a solid stint at Selhurst Park, 74 years old, taking over a Hornets team now in the bottom three. Crikey. All right, well, Dom Fifield, you've seen him at work at his most recent gig at Palace there. Duncan, you're standing by with some pretty specific predictions about how many points per game Roy will bring. The Hornets. Dom, let's come to you first, though. Hodgson, no stranger to rescue missions. West Brom, famously. Fulham, equally famously. And Palace, too, because I forget this, but when he took over at Selhurst Park, it was straight after the Frank de Boer debacle. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he took over with them, having played for and lost for, no goals scored. And after seven games, Palace had played seven and lost seven and no goals scored. Um, it's it's he he was uh, that's that's facetious. He he was he was brilliant at Palace with everything he did, and he will. I actually th- look at this and think of all the appointments that Watford made in recent times, and there've been a lot of them. This is actually one that is really quite sensible, um, and that surprises me in some ways. Um, hmm. There have been slow starts, so I'm not saying this is going to be an instant cure. Although they they, they he's got a bit of leeway there that they're not completely out of it Watford I think at Fulham he he only won one of his first 10 matches in the league in charge and at Palace it was one win in eight at the beginning although the team was playing a lot better scoring goals and picking up points um in that that doesn't sound promising though 
No, but then after that, there, there was a flurry of results. I mean, Fulham Fulham had four wins out of their last five that season and stayed up. And then the following year were qualifying for Europe. And the, indeed, the year after that, they were getting to the Europa League final. Uh, Palace that year, despite the, the De Boer experiment, finished 11th. So that's not bad going, really. Uh, he, he will just get them structured. He will have to use this this little period. He's only got, I mean, they play next weekend, so he's only got like 10 days of, of training with these guys to familiarise himself with the squad. But he will he will lean on people he knows. I mean, Tom Cleverley is in the squad. He gave Cleverley all 13 of his England caps. He was a mainstay of his England side, actually, in the, in the initial period after taking up the reins with the national side. Um, he's got Ben Foster on the books, again, another player that he knows well. Uh, he's got experienced Premier League players like Musa Sissoko in there. Um, King as well up top. And, and he will use Ishmael Assar when he comes back from AFCON as his Wilfred Zaha character. And it will be structured 4-4-2. It will be more solid, far more solid than it's been. I mean, they've been so porous. I think it's is it six managers since they last had a Premier League clean yes. sheet. It's something- well, is it? Is it? It's absolutely daft. I mean, the, the stat is is ridiculous, um, and I think that they will get some clean sheets in the in the period ahead, even with this personnel. Mm. It won't be great to watch, maybe, but that doesn't really matter in Watford's predicament, does it? There's only one team in top flight history that's never kept a clean sheet in in a season. That was Stoke at the turn of the of the century, back Good to know. hundreds Good years to know. ago. So, so yeah, I was hoping they'd do it, but you're right, Roy will sort them out. Interesting to see how he deals, as you mentioned, with some key figures at Vicarage Road, not least Harry the Hornet, who he famously <laughs> branded disgraceful uh, three years ago over that Wilfred Zaha diving. Well, yeah, I mean, but he wasn't even, Wilfred wasn't even at the club when Harry the Hornet and Wilfred Zaha had their clash. It was That was from December 2016 when Sam Allardyce was in charge. Right. It was Allardyce's first game. Was he picking a fight to get the fans on side, do you think? Well, he was <laughs> he was ambushed by it in a press conference ahead of okay. the, the trip to Watford the following season. Um, in fact, it wasn't even the following season. I think it was actually the start of 2018-19. And um, <laughs> he's just... I love that. If you actually see the clip, it's worth having a listen to. The way, the way he goes... I mean, you're telling me about Harry the Hornet, who I presume is the Watford mascot, <laughs> as if there's someone else wandering around. In that way, I think it's disgraceful. You know, because that's not what football matches are about. You know, and certainly if it's if it's provoking the crowd into looking for something which isn't there, it should be stopped. <laughs> it's it's uh, yeah, classic Roy, but yeah, yeah, he'll have to make his peace with the with the mascot. You'd you'd think. Uh, you mentioned that extraordinary stat about clean sheets, which blows the one I had out of the water, which is simply that Watford are on their fourteenth manager in ten years, which is the most in the last 10 years in the Premier League or the Championship. Uh, Crisis Club, Nottingham Forest, for example, have only managed 12. But Watford, some way off the European leaders in this field, and you will never guess which country they play their football in. Italia. It is Italy and it is Genoa. who are currently yeah. on a whopping 19 in 10 years. They're on their third this season, the undisputed champs at this kind of thing. West Ham have only ever had 18 ever, which is a contrast. What, like ever... Ever. ever, ever, yeah. What like ever, 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 like even before the Premier League ever. <laughs> what the man who spent the nineties in Italy? It's like this, this is impossible. That's just not possible. <laughs> it is true. East End loyalty, isn't it? I mean, that's what they're all about. Right. Still, while I digest that, why don't you uh, lay down some pretty exciting stats about what Roy mm. Hodgson will give your club? 
Yeah, well, it's a strange thing with, with Hodgson in that in his Premier League career, he's pretty much done the same job in terms of win percentage and points per game. So uh, Palace it was 1.22, Fulham 1.28, Blackburn 1.29, Liverpool 1.25 and West Brom a, a monstrous 1.34. Now, at Blackburn and Liverpool, that clearly wasn't good enough. Blackburn had recently been champions, Liverpool are Liverpool. So he's pretty unpopular at those two clubs. But the other three, as as Don was saying, came in and, and saved them all and, and you know structured them well and and essentially if he can if we go for the lowest one of those figures, which is the one point two two at Palace. Okay. If he does that for the rest of the season at Watford, and let's not forget they've still got to play Burnley twice and you know, right. they've got some pretty good fixtures. That'll get them to thirty six points, which is kind of the the cusp these days of, of staying up. I think only nine teams this century have gone down with 36 or more points and none since Newcastle back in 15-16. Now, you could say that the bottom of the table at the moment is pretty competitive and given this transfer window, could could get more so. So maybe you might need 37 or 38. So I think it will be close, but I think that he has, it's a good decision. I think Watford have got a chance now of, of scraping out. So All right. As you say, they travel to Turf Moor a week on Saturday to face Burnley in the next Premier League fixture. Intriguingly, Watford's last five Premier League wins away from home have all come under different managers. Can Hodgson make that six? Can he? All right. A little bit of a cliffhanger there because that game's not for another <laughs> ten days. Uh, let's amuse ourselves in the meantime then by hearing next about Everton and their ongoing search for a new man in charge. We all enjoy the sport we call the beautiful game. But since I've retired, I've discovered an ugly, even darker side to the sport we love. Join me as Jamie Redknapp investigates. Thanks, Jamie. We'll take it from here. Join Jamie Redknapp for Jamie Investigates, the football mockumentary series. Watch on Paddy Power's Twitter. This week, Jamie investigates Twitter trolls. Do you know the truth? Paddy Power. 18plusbegambleaware.org Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Also on the hunt for a new manager are Everton. And the process is looking Every bit as smooth and well-run as you'd expect of this club. Tuesday, the word was the club would be hiring their old flame, Victor Pereira. Uh, he of the eclectic CV with titles at Porto and in China and I think Olympiacos, but relegation also in the Bundesliga and getting sacked at Fenerbahce. Uh, this failed to uh, charm the fans who promptly staged protest and daubed the walls of Goodison with Pereira out. Lampard in. Pereira responded with a lengthy interview on Sky Sports News. Where are we now on Thursday morning? Well, let's ask somebody in the know, Greg O'Keefe, Everton correspondent for The Athletic. Greg. Good morning. Uh, it just gets ever more surreal around Goodison Park, doesn't it? Right. And, and you know, well, at least there's a fresh coat of, of paint or two on, on the place. Uh, so is Victor Pereira 
still the front runner? Is it now Frank Lampard? Could Fabio Cannavaro stage a late comeback? What do you think? Well, I think the, the latter of those, I think we can rule out for now. Although I shouldn't be so naive. I think with <laughs> Everton's owner, you can't really truly rule anything out. Um, we understood he was supposed to be coming back to uh, London yesterday. You know, as billionaires tend to do, he splits his uh, living arrangements across uh, um, France, south of France, um, London, and occasionally he'll dip his toe into, into Merseyside for the games more than anything. But I think his his presence in the UK, at least, might add a little more clarity to the to the back end of the week and to the process getting a little bit closer to completion because it is it is the owner who feels that he wants to have a manager in or he did want to have a manager in by the end of this week earliest starter next with the FA Cup tie with Brentford and then the huge game against Newcastle in the Premier League on the horizon but um, I think the the unedifying well the two unedifying spectacles of uh, first Pereira effectively doing a live job interview on on television uh, on Wednesday afternoon. It means that you cannot look for the negative things, but you must look for everything. You must look how many titles uh, in different countries that uh, that uh, that I got. And then, in a more unpleasant still, you know, the uh, supporters vandalising their own. Some supporters vandalising their own stadium, such as their anger. Um, just adds to this feeling of chaos around the club, and it's not helpful. You know, Thomas Tuchel spoke about you know what unnecessary noise uh, around Chelsea didn't he a couple of weeks back. Well, it feels as if Everton have got like a, a brass band <laughs> perpetually parked in the Gladys Street um, because th- this is th- this is becoming a sideshow. Not becoming a sideshow. It is very much a, a huge show. It may as well be Ted Lasso set in Merseyside, but it's it's really not helping this very understrained relationship between the fans and the owner at the moment. Um, Mm. There's this strategic review ongoing, which is supposedly going to address how key decisions are made. When we should say that the decision for Pereira to go before, you know, to go on on to Sky wasn't the clubs, but, you know, he, he was advised through that. We believe by people who, you know, who, who do mix in the same circles as the owner. And that's just not helpful. It's going to people, being very frustrated and, and leads people thinking that Everton are becoming ever more of a farce. Right. I, I had the sense as well that he was, he'd been sat around waiting for some kind of word from the, the club and decided to just try and nudge things forward perhaps by going on, on TV. Having said that, Wednesday, it seemed like a, the, an announcement of Frank Lampard being the, the club's choice was was imminent. Where, where are we now? What's your, who, who would be your tip, do you think, to be in charge? Well, I mean, again, you speak about you know the, the strange graffiti we've seen. There was that one from uh, much earlier in the week outside Grissom, which said Pereira out, Lampard in. Mm. <laughs> I think it's the first case of graffiti for a manager who's not even been in. It's calling for him to be out. Lampard <laughs> does have more support among the supporters. Uh, he has some support on the board as well. Clearly, I think in, in his, an advantage he has is Premier League experience albeit ended in the sack, but the, he could probably talk and did talk in his interview, I understand, about many of the positives that, that he displayed at Stamford Bridge uh, in terms of you know the way the Chelsea young players shone when they were operated under transfer embargo. Everton aren't mm. under transfer embargo, but do have little wriggle room with spending because of their situation with the Premier League profit and sustainability rules, all that money they've wasted without commercial revenue coming in to balance the books. Hmm. So he does have uh, he does have a chance. I wouldn't say he's the favourite. I'd say Vitor Pereira. I would agree with you. I think that 
strategically the decision to do the the, the piece with the, the cameras was partly a sort of repost to the criticism he's had on the fan base and partly a bit of a, a bit of a desperation you know you know he'd slipped from being a favorite to being somebody who the, the noise was stressed and the owner was getting concerned about the uh, the the fans opposition to him so I, I think it's very difficult to I I would wonder if the board know who their favorite is at the moment I'd, I'd guess they don't Okay. It's a situation that started out a little bit comedic, but it's fast turning serious. So in that sense, perfectly suits Frank Lampard's uh, <laughs> operandi. What, what about the role of Keir Jarabshin uh, in all of this? How, how much of a concern should that be? Well, that's really concerning, uh, sort of neutrals and observers and ma- massively so Everton supporters who look at um, Keir Jarabshin's involvement in other clubs when he becomes very involved, and look, he's a very, very influential and experienced and pervasive intermediary, uh, deal maker and power broker in, in, in football, not just in, in the UK, but across the world. So, you know, he will, he's involved in a lot of clubs. He's involved at Arsenal. You know, he's, he's worked at a number of clubs across the Premier League to get deals done, to get players in and out. But his particular influence at Everton uh, is worrying people. You know, he's... Friends with the owner, they're both Iranian. They share uh, many mutual acquaintances. The the owner seems to trust him as a very intimate advisor on, on matters with Everton's future, uh, not just transfers. I think he uses him as sounding board on on all things, and that is alarming. People who see that that Jarabshin isn't a sporting advisor, he is uh, somebody who stands to profit from deals involving football clubs so they sense that the fear their fear is that there's a, a mixed interest there uh, especially when they see players represented by him come into the club who managers don't want um, so for example Rafa Benitez we understand didn't want Anwar Al-Ghazi on loan from Aston Villa but yeah in he came uh, as Luca Dean one of the better players went out um, so things like that are the, are the sort of um, the symptom of this ongoing influence of Jarabshin and I, I think the owner promised to listen to fans when he sent an open letter to supporters last week mm. uh, but unfortunately it seems that when it comes to allowing Jarabshin to call the shots uh, or seemingly to call the shots with transfers and big decisions at Goodison or certainly to influence them very very deeply it doesn't look like uh, Mishiri is ready to let that one go just yet. Alright Greg thank you so much for that update and uh, you can follow all the latest from Greg on The Athletic. Dom, uh, much like with Roy Hodgson, you've been kind of witness firsthand to uh, Frank Lampard's most recent managerial stint, which ended, I think, was it exactly a year ago today at Chelsea that he that he got the news? It was the 25th, so... Oh, OK, a couple of days ago. All right. But uh, as I say, Wednesday, we very much thought that was going to be the call, and now everything seems to be up in the air again. Maybe, listener, by the time you hear this, it'll all have been settled. But uh, what would your take on Frank Lampard at Everton be? I think it would be a good job for Frank Lampard to take. Um, I think there would be scope there for him to to add to the squad. I think they would find money for him to spend somehow. There may be a bit of wheeling and dealing to be involved. And there's clearly a club with huge heritage and, and ambition and potential there. It's, it is a mess, but it's also a clean slate. I mean, the, Rafa Benitez got rid of most of the staff and then they got rid of Rafa Benitez as well. So, I mean, he he could shape it into what he he want, wanted if he's 
given those tools. Um, look, there's an element of risk for him. There's an element of risk for Everton if if, if they turn to him. But it's, it's strange because Lampard's a very polarising figure, particularly online. Um, it's mm, it's that's uh, unusual. For, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As is this podcast. Um, but it's I don't know. He, he there are a lot of people there are very very quick to dismiss everything he's done in management. I think there are positive things that he's he's he he did. I mean, he he, he took Derby County, a very aging team, uh, when he took over. Who sold Matteo Vidra, um, sold Andrea Weiman, and he introduced a bit of youth. Who you know, people that he knew: Wilson, Mount, Fikaya Tamori, and took them to a playoff final that season. Okay, didn't go up. At Chelsea definitely encouraged the development of youth. You know, yes, working in a transfer embargo, but also a transfer embargo in which Chelsea spent £100 million on new players. Um, but he, he, I mean, look, Mason Mount and uh, Reese James, for example, Tammy Abraham as well, definitely mm. benefited from his his coaching. Um, so we can't be completely dismissive and, and rewrite history. Um, I think that achievement of finishing fourth that year was actually really good in the, in the wake of selling Eden Hazard and not actually, you know, adding to the squad the way that he wanted necessarily. But we sort of remember the the unravelling after that 17-match unbeaten run in the second season um, and, you know, a six-week period where literally everything went wrong. Mm. Um, but he's he's definitely got the experience in terms of he knows he's got some, some Premier League experience to back him up and, and he would be a glamorous name and, and, and somebody who would, who would attract young players to work at Everton and maybe develop the, the talent they've got there. But... You know, it's, it's still a risk because he's never really been in a relegation struggle, and that's what effectively what Everton are, particularly when you look at Hodgson coming up behind. Yeah, well, a risk though for him to take that job as well, because it's the kind of club you would expect to stay up. But were they to get into further difficulties, mm. they're kind of set to do. Uh, that would kind of be put at the manager's door, probably. But yes, I mean the dream scenario is the Lampard goes to Everton, does really well, establishes them, and Steven Gerrard meanwhile goes back to Liverpool. And we've got the the site of Merseyside Derby's. Can Lampard and Gerrard operate in the same city? It would be the age-old question. Well, but One of them would have to play away every week. and the other. <laughs> I mean, technically, <laughs> that is the fixture list, but yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Uh, OK. Well, let's hope the people who, behind the scenes, write all of this stuff and mm. kind of drip feed yeah. it out to the public. Let's hope that that's very much their, their agenda. Excellent. <laughs> Listener? Uh, with that still very much in the balance, let's next up conclude today's show with a little bit of transfer talk. Mm-mm. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which will give some cheer to all you Hammers fans when David Moyes signs Matt Fellaini to help with West Ham's latest injury crisis. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Other T's and C's apply and please gamble responsibly. Totally Football League show is out on Thursday. No winter break, of course, in the EFL. Championship League 1, League 2... In the Championship, Hull City are also busy changing manager. They've just been taken over. The Turkey-based Akun Media Group, I hope I've said that right, have come in for the previous owners, the Alam family. And uh, after back-to-back wins under the new regime against Blackburn and Bournemouth, the second and third ranked teams in the Championship, they have sacked their manager, Grant McCann. Why? You can find out in the Totally Football League show. Uh, Meantime, transfers. Deadline day is Monday. 11pm on Monday for you to get your deals in, clubs. Arsenal, you won't be having Dusan Vlavic. Sorry about that. Juventus basically stumped up all that money they had lying around that was earmarked Cristiano's wages and (laughs) spunked that on the very, 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 very exciting centre forward from Fiorentina. Are Fiorentina upset about this just a little bit? The mayor of the city has said that Juve have trampled and humiliated Fiorentina fans. Italy's former Prime Minister, himself also a former Mayor of Florence, Matteo Renzi, called for a day of mourning. So, yeah. Rocco Comiso, who recently excited some controversy uh, for his comments about the state of football in Italy and calling the Artemio Franchi the biggest piece of s*** ever, um, has, the Gazetta points out this Thursday, so far cashed in 200 million euros worth of uh, income from players that he inherited when he bought the club from the Della Valle. They're not very happy with him. You say that about the mm. ex-Prime Minister. Yeah. I didn't hear David Cameron saying that when Jack Grealish left Aston Villa. Um, He's a West Ham diff- fan, though. Massive well, fan. yeah, maybe he'll do it when Declan Rice leaves. <laughs> we'll to see. Perhaps so. Anyway, so Arsenal's search continues. Anthony Martial, he's on his way to Sevilla. He's gone on loan from Man United. That sounds like a really good move for a Sevilla, who you will, you will recall are just behind uh, Real Madrid in La Liga. What, four points behind? Hmm. Uh, let's move on to one that's got Dom excited. Donny van der Beek. Is that on, Dom? <laughs> who knows? Possibly. I mean, they are talking. I'm, I'm a bit confused by it, if I'm honest. I mean, it's. I'm not sure it's necessarily a... A move that that Palace needs to do, and it would be quite an expensive loan to to pull off in what remains of the the window. But I guess if you've got the chance of signing a a Dutch international who's clearly a very good player and did brilliantly mm. at Ajax, um, it's just four Premier League starts. It's going to Manchester United. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just very odd. I mean, I, I don't, there are other areas of that of Palace that Palace team that I thought might have been 
strengthened ahead of as as someone who's forgotten entirely what van der beek does on a football pitch can you how would he fit into about the, four the minutes side? usually yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think he would i think in the current team mm. he would be one of the two attacking number eight so it'd be conor gallagher and donny van der beek which you know, on good. paper is very good yeah mm. um but I, i'm just I still think that mid that midfield hasn't worked of late. It's it's been quite porous, and I th- I'm not sure Palace are quite at the stage yet where they can have a load of attacking players without having a, a proper strong defensive midfielder at the back. And at the moment, that's Will Hughes. Mm. Uh, that's quite a lightweight midfield in in my eyes. Conor Gallagher, Will Hughes, and Donny Van der Beek. But anyway, look, it's we'll see. It's a it would be an exciting move, and I think it would get it would get people's juices flowing down at Sellers Park. Can I ask, Dom, if you're, if you're the man to reveal this when it goes through, can you describe yourself as Dommy van der Break? I think it would... <laughs> as in breaking news. Yeah, no, I think we understood, Duncan. Um, crikey. I don't really know there's a lot of that. players making way. So there's <laughs> van der Beek potentially on his way out. Old Trafford, Martial, we say, yeah, heading to Sevilla. Uh, Newcastle wanted him, I think. Is that right? They also wanted Jesse Lingard... But in both cases, it seems like Man United have made it difficult for those loan deals to go through, possibly regarding Newcastle as a future competitor for the same kind of targets. I'm not sure. I, I just love Newcastle's approach at the moment. This, um, the, the list, every day there are new people that they've bid for. We've got Mitchell, Mitchell Backer, Dan Byrne, Bruno Grimares, Jesse Lingard, Diego Carlos, Sven Botman... I mean, Sven Botman. <laughs> Sven Botman. <laughs> uh, yes, Bruno Guimaraes uh, appears, it says here, to be on his way to St James's Park for £33 million. Leon I think Leon and... might dispute that. But, oh, really? I think they issued a statement yesterday saying oh, that, uh, he's, he's, uh, that no fee has been agreed, but then there's a lot of interest in him and he's obviously a very good player. So mm. Well, here's Julian Laurence issuing a statement in which he says, I can't stress enough what a fantastic player he is. Just imagine this, you know, excitable <laughs> Julian voice. Uh, what a fantastic player he is and what a great coup this is for Newcastle. He will increase the team so much, exclamation mark. So that sounds good. If it goes through, Dom, you're right to cast a little bit of He's got the, the same expected assists as Lionel Messi this season in Liga. So. Well... Is that a good thing, though, Duncan? The, the the numbers I'm hearing about Messi, more shots than anyone, but only one goal. Yeah, the goal scoring hasn't worked, but the creativity has been pretty good. So, all right. Yeah. Do you want to? I mean, you posted Messi's goals versus XG uh, on Twitter, I think, on Wednesday, and it was shocking. Yeah, he. I've got the numbers since 2010-11, and every season until this season, he's been, at, you know, above his expected goals. With some How seasons, much above? 20, well, 2012-13, he was 17 goals above his expected goals, which is just put that in perspective. A regular player, how much would they be? Like a, a Mo Salah, how much would he be above his? XG? Mo Salah would be, you know, sort of three or four or five on a good season, maybe. Jesus. I mean, 17. And he is, was 17 ahead. Yeah, and he he was over 10 ahead in five separate seasons. I mean. It does point to the fact he might be the greatest footballer of all time. But at uh, PSG this season, and you can, you know, you can... What was he last season at Barcelona, just before we get to the crucial PSG this season? So, yeah, last season, 
uh, above Sonny. He started slowly, people won't remember, but by the end of the season, he was still 6.2 above, above XG. Sheepers. So how many is above this year at PSG? He's, well, he, for the first time in recorded history, he's below his XG. He's four below. So one goal. Four he's got below. fewer goals than, than Josh Sargent, which wasn't something I predicted. <laughs> I mean, people pointed out, actually, my, as Don said earlier, the internet can be quite a... Uh, Polarising. You know, Polarising place. No, and, it can't. And, uh, <laughs> and I had some Messi fans point out that, you know, he's a new system. He's not necessarily the focal point in this, you know, PSG team. But it is, uh-huh. it is you know, a huge drop-off. So, yeah. yeah. Well, if you're curious about the reasons for some of that, we, 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 we were talking about Messi's underwhelming campaign so far and whether he buys his own bread at the boulangerie. <laughs> you, you won't believe what the answer to that is. Uh, in last Tuesday's European... Totally football show. So why not give that a bang if you've got a spare bit of time, uh, listener. All right. Uh, fantastic. One other quick transfer that I wanted to mention. I don't know if Dom and Duncan. Who? Dom and Duncan. In the pod. CBBs. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so one other one that I wanted to mention. Uh, Diego Costa. Diego Costa has just signed up for the 11th club of his remarkable career. Do you know who they are? Is it Salernitana? It is Salernitana. Bottom of Serie A currently. Eight points from safety. But uh, can he can he stage a great escape there? Who knows? But excitingly, he'll be teaming up with Frank Ribéry down there in Salerno, just south of Naples. What a <laughs> <That is brilliant. laughs> exciting, an exciting uh, last third of the season they're set for, my word. Brilliant. Any other transfer news? Dom that must be how, like... Spanish fans felt when Bolton had like Fernando Hierro and Ivan Camper. They they've gone where? All right, well, well let's see how they do. All right. Well, Selena, who you, Selena Tano, who you will recall, were uh, minutes away from being thrown out of the league mid-season because of the fact that they were still owned by the man who also owned another club in the division. Um, yeah, but that's all been sorted now, so that's good. Anyway, all right. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, Monday we'll be back, and amongst other things, we'll talk about that Canada-USA game that's coming up on Sunday. Absolutely huge match in the CONCACAF, which, no, we haven't only just started to care about because there's no other football this weekend. It is genuinely <laughs> a big, big game. And uh, loads of other stuff as well. On Monday we'll get uh, the word on the quarterfinals in the AFCON, and much more besides. Listen, do join us for that. Dom, many thanks. You're going to be up on uh, Straight Outta Cobham probably right now because, in fact, you're waiting to go and do that for me to finish this sentence, aren't you? <laughs> more Frank Lampard chat, no doubt. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and much more besides. And, Duncan, you'll be available via the excellent theanalyst.com and yep. uh, on the social. Brilliant. Thank you for being with us today. Listen, I thank you for joining us. Have a great weekend. And uh, many thanks to producer Charlie, of course. And we will speak to you Monday. Cheerio. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.